You are listening to the Regent College Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Octavio Fernandez y Mostajo. My name is Claire Perini. And I am excited to welcome you back to the Regent College Podcast. Octavio is excited because we just had a great conversation uh, with the Reverend Dr. Soon Chan Ra, mm-hmm. who is an Associate Professor of Church Growth and Evangelism at North Park Theological Seminary in Chicago. Uh, and he's the author of The Next Evangelicalism, Many Colors, and the co-editor of Honoring the Generations. He serves on the board of World Vision, Sojourners, the Christian Community Development Association, Evangelicals for Justice, and the Catalyst Leadership Center. Mm-hmm. This guy, he has two doctorates, two master's degrees. <laughs> I meant to ask him what his two doc- like. I meant to ask him more about that, but we were too, too busy talking about too many other things. Yeah. We had um, a lively and impassioned conversation with Sun Chan about um, ethnicity and diversity and the implications and complications of that within the North American church in particular. He's, he's located in the States, but he's a Korean American. And um, he, he's been doing this kind of thinking and researching and talking and theologizing for 30 years. And so he's, he's, um, he's a great person to talk to. Yeah. And we, we talked about all sorts of things. Yeah, I mean, just, just go with the excitement we feel right now. I mean, this has been invigorating and exciting. And j- just because we're so on fire right now, you should just listen. Just because of that, no matter what he talked about, he got us excited, and you need to be excited just like we are. But I know that's not going to be enough. So, we t- like like Claire said, we talk about uh, how to handle our ethnically diverse church. Is this something we're supposed to seek? Uh, what, if, what if our neighborhoods are not ethnically di- diverse enough? It's been amazing. You know, this hot topic of, of race and it, it sometimes we talk about it in, in, in the social context, but not so much in, in the in the church theological context. And I think we, we really, really have to. And this was one of those great conversations about that. So we're really excited and I hope you get excited as well. Enjoy our conversation with Reverend Dr. Soon Chan Ra. Soon-chan, welcome to the Regent College Podcast. It's great to have you. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. Like, yes. man, I'm looking forward to, uh, to this conversation. <laughs> Octavio <laughs> sent me an email and he said, this is going to be a great conversation. So no pressure, Soon-chan. We're, I we're hope ready. I so. Yeah, that's a lot of pressure <laughs> on this one guy over yeah. here. <laughs> we'll, we'll help you out as best we can. We'll help you out as best we can. Sounds good. Um, so we're, we're talking about something we were just joking beforehand about... Um, one of the things you, the thing we're going to talk about today is freeing the church from Western cultural captivity. Yeah, like mm, that that could trigger a lot of a lot of different reactions. <laughs> Certainly could, especially <laughs> during this time during uh, yeah. in the U.S. Anyway, it's very true. Right. Yeah, exactly. And so, why don't we start there? Uh, the, you say the North American church should escape from its captivity to Western cultural trappings. What do you mean by that? And why did you use the word captivity? Yeah, so the word captivity has been used quite frequently uh, throughout church history. Uh, Maybe one of the earlier usage would have been Martin Luther talking about the Babylonian captivity of the church. 
Uh, and in the 20th century, it's been used as, as well. There was uh, usages uh, such as the suburban captivity of the church, the Pelagian yeah. captivity of the church. They're kind of different examples of the use of the word captivity. And what I mean by captivity and what I'm challenging on this particular uh, use of that word is that there are times when the church in the West, particularly uh, American churches, uh, that are uh, captive to the culture around it. Uh, meaning that our our um, who we are as a church and our ethics and and our behavior uh, and what we do as a church is oftentimes shaped by the surrounding culture more than by the word of God itself. Uh, now, a very basic definition of liberalism to me as a theologian is liberalism is when the church takes its cues from the culture and society rather than from the word of God. It's shaped by society than by the word of God. Uh, and what I argue is that what we have seen, especially in the last uh, 100 plus years in the church, is that uh, the North American church takes its cues not from the word of God, but from uh, the social cultural norms. And that's the identification of this cultural captivity, and that it is specifically a Western white cultural captivity, because we are more likely to adapt the norms of our society than we are to actually live by the word of God. Mm-hmm. Question. Any, go, go. I was going to say, is there an example of something like a sort of a particular sort of one example that you're like, that's the, that, that's one example of um, the kind of a Western or North American kind of way of culture. Yeah. Something, just give an example of what you mean. Yeah. I mean, I think most of us recognize um, the hyper individualism of the West, and this is just mm-hmm. a very uh, salient characteristic of Western culture. We are hyper individualistic. And what you notice is that the Western church also tends to be hyper-individualistic. Mm-hmm. And the contrast that I draw is that when you look at the scriptures, uh, 66 books of the Bible, uh, 63 of the books of the Bible are written to communities. And only three, you could argue about that even, of the, of the books of the Bible written to individuals. Timothy, Titus... Maybe Philemon, but nobody reads that anyway. So you've got three books in the Bible that are written to individuals, but the overwhelming percentage of the scriptures is written to community. The people of, of Corinth, the people of God, the nation of Israel. Uh, this is a powerful part of the scriptures. It testifies to community. Now, if you were to go to a typical uh, U.S. church, for example, and listen to the sermon, you would never know that. You would never know that the Bible is written to communities. It's written to the individuals. And for example, when we preach John 3.16, and I was a youth pastor for many years, so I know how to do this. Uh, you are at the last night of your, um, of your retreat, and uh, you pick out the worst kid, right? You pick out the worst kid, the, the most troublemaker kid, Johnny, and you preach the sermon to him, the individual. You say, mm-hmm. God so loves you, Johnny. Johnny, I'm looking at you. God loves you. Now, that's not nothing wrong with that. I want Johnny to come to faith and become a Christian. Mm-hmm. Johnny's probably my kid if he's a troublemaker. So <laughs> I love that Jesus loves Johnny as an individual. However, John 3.16 is not speaking to an individual. Right. For God so loved not just Johnny, but the world. the world. And so we take a beautiful passage that is meant to be read in community so that the world can understand that God has sent his son, and we reduce it to this uh, specific individual application. Mm. Now, it doesn't mean individual expressions of the gospel are wrong. It means that we're so captive to the Western philosophy of individualism, we really can't move beyond that and see how Scripture speaks to communities. Mm -hmm. Mm. When did you realize, like, 
that we were actually captive to that culture and not just being very influenced by, but actually captive. Like when did you realize that? Well, you know, this is something as a, as an immigrant, as a Korean immigrant to the United States, um, I began to see some of this kind of disconnect between my cultural upbringing as a Korean and kind of the education that I was getting, uh, even my theological education, uh, what I was being told was the right way to do church And I was realizing there was a devaluing of my culture as a Korean American. Uh, so, for mm -hmm. example, I, I use this as, in terms of my experience as a Korean going into a majority culture situation and being told that I had to behave and act a certain way in order to fit in. So the story that I tell is um, I'm a Korean American. And uh, it's in my blood to be passionate. So those of you who know Korean or have Korean friends or know Korean pastors, we are passionate people. Mm. So if yeah. you were to visit the prayer mountain in Korea, for example, there is not a stitch of vegetation anywhere on that mountain because Koreans tear that place up. We knock over trees, we rip up bushes, we tear down the grass. Uh, that's how passionate we are. This is how we pray. And so that's part of who I am as a Korean American. I'm passionate. And that's how I preach. That's how I am in meetings. Now, here was the problem, though. When I moved from being a pastor of the church to the seminary faculty, and I moved from the East Coast to the Midwest of the United States, uh, I encountered a different way of communicating. And it was something, those of you in the U.S. might know this, it's called Minnesota Nice. And Minnesota Nice, the way it was explained to me, is a person who is... Uh, a dog comes up to you, so friendly, licks your face and just mm -hmm. loves you. At the same time, the dog is peeing on your shoes. Now, what you're seeing there is this externality of niceness and politeness, mm -hmm. but a hostility there that is more subversive. Now, for me as a Korean American, coming into a setting that is governed by Minnesota Nice, a very white Western way of conducting mm -hmm. business, I felt like an outsider. And in fact, I was kind of told that my Korean passion was inappropriate for that context. My mm -hmm. Korean uh, passion and, you know, so they kept asking me, are you angry? Are you upset? <laughs> you not, I'm just being mm -hmm. a Korean. I'm not angry or upset. This mm -hmm. is who I am. And so there was this kind of tonal policing. There was this kind of, well, there's a right way to do things in our, in our seminary and there are wrong ways to do things. The right way is Minnesota nice. The right way mm -hmm. is to be passive aggressive. The wrong way is to show your passion. Um, and so you see this in kind of meetings and uh, church gatherings where there are certain cultural standards that are considered to be superior than other cultural standards. So I, that's just one example. I've seen this over and over again. And one of the first times I encountered this was actually when I went to seminary. My very first year in seminary, I was assigned a book and the book was about theology and culture. And the, the book said there are three cultures. The first culture is high culture. And it was all defined yeah. as Western culture and not right. Western culture, but European classical culture. Yes. High culture was Bach, Brahms, Beethoven, Shakespeare, Downton mm. Abbey, you know, whatever, whatever was on PBS <laughs> at the time was considered yeah. high culture. And then there was low culture, and that was Britney Spears and television sitcoms and Andy mm. Warhol's painting of soup cans. That was low popular culture. And then they put everything else in the world, 99.9% of the other cultures, and threw it into a category called folk culture. Mm. 
And folk culture was African-American spirituals, uh, Mm -hmm. Native American regalia, uh, Korean-American drumming and fan dancing. That was all folk culture. And the book Mm -hmm. actually said that high culture was inherently superior to folk Mm -hmm. culture. That high culture could hold virtue and sustain virtue better than folk culture. So here you're seeing in the very first book I read in seminary, being told that Western classical culture was inherently superior to all the other cultures in the world, including my culture, including the culture of my fellow African-American students, including the culture of my fellow Latino Latina students, that -hmm. there was an inherent superiority of one culture over and against the other cultures. Mm -hmm. Mm. Right. So that's, that makes sense of the captivity question pretty well, I'd be saying. Um, and so then you would argue as well that the demographics of evangelical Christianity, and I think you're meaning in the States, evangelical Christianity in the States, but maybe just clarify that, have changed, but the power structures remain the same. Could you chat a bit more about – because that's, that's sort of what you're saying. There's a high culture, there's a low culture. There's a, there's, I mean, there's, there's a – like in the language alone, there's a power dynamic there, right? But, yeah, how, tell us, talk to us about the power structures. Yeah, so the demographics, by the way, I believe are happening in both Canada and in the United States. You right. see it a little more yeah. pronounced in the United States, mm-hmm. uh, mainly because the white church is in such sharp decline in both nations. Um, and in, probably in Canada, you're getting the growth of the Asian churches, the Asian Canadian yeah. churches, yeah. Uh, the mm-hmm. Chinese Canadian churches, the Korean Canadian churches, mm-hmm. uh, and First yeah. Nation churches. So you're getting a little bit different trajectory. In the U.S., you're getting kind of uh, across the spectrum, African-American churches, Latino Latina churches, Asian American. You're getting a broader spectrum of growth. So in right. both uh, both countries, you're seeing the decline of the Anglo-white churches, whether it's Anglo-Canadian or Anglo-American uh, U.S., um, and the growth of the immigrant or ethnic minority churches. Mm -hmm. So that's been tracking for several decades now. We've been tracking this for several decades. In fact, uh, a quick um, check-in in in 2018. Uh, During the 2018 election, the the, uh, PRRI did some research on identification, religious identification, and found that 17% of voting Americans considered themselves to be white evangelical, but 16% of voting Americans considered themselves to be non-white evangelicals. So among evangelicals, the number is almost 50-50, and this was in 2018. Uh, That number is probably 50-50 now, given the trajectory. So what we're seeing, I think, in both countries, maybe slightly um, aggressive rate of change in the U.S., is that you are getting a much more demographic diversity, not only in society, that's clearly happening, but a demographic diversity within the church. And I argue that the diversity in the church is probably happening at a faster rate than diversity in society at large. And, you know, it's Mm. one of the few Mm, times that the church is 10 years ahead of society. It's usually the other way. We spend 10 years catching up to what's going on in the world. (laughs) In this case, the church is actually 10 years ahead. But the question that I've been raising is even if you have that diversity happening in the church, um, the system structures, the power dynamics have not changed. So one of the the illustrations that I use is um, in the same way that even though American society is changing, you still have a, a Senate that is overwhelmingly white. You still have you know leadership in our in our upper levels of leadership that is overwhelmingly white. You're still seeing that in Americans and churches as well. So right. even though the demographics again among evangelicals is very close to fifty fifty, yeah. would we say that it's fifty fifty in terms of our acknowledged leaders? If we were to get all the presidents of the uh, North American seminaries together, would we see a 50-50 split? Uh, would we see a 75-25 split? 
it's probably more 95 5 95% 95-5. 5% are non-white if we were to examine the faculty of seminaries and universities if we were to look at denominational leadership if we were to look at the best selling books uh, you know we would see over and over again that the influencers and those who supposedly shape the culture of the church they would tend to be white male even though mm-hmm. demographically, we have obviously women who are kind of discounted from this equation, but certainly people of color, women of color as well are discounted from this equation because mm-hmm. the influencers, those who kind of make the decisions, the presidents, uh, the, the denominational heads, that still is a very white male oriented leadership, even though the demographics have been shifting for many, many decades now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Would you say it's... I'm guessing it's because white people trust other white people more than they would trust an ethnically different. And most likely, I mean, I guess the ones that get to make the call are the ones with the biggest bank account, I guess. So if if the biggest bank account is in the white camp, most likely white people are going to be in, le- in leadership. Is it is it somehow related to that? Yeah, you know, always follow the money. That's never a bad, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's never a bad idea. Uh, you know, my background is in sociology and history. So right. um, as a sociology historian, the, it's always a good idea to research the money. Where is the money mm-hmm. coming from and how does money influence power, et cetera? That's, mm-hmm. that's also Western captivity, right? The, yeah. the, right? Those who have the money control the power. That's a very yes. Western, North American yes. value yeah. capitalistic system. Um, so, yeah, I would say follow the money, follow the, the influences and who gets to make who get to make these decisions. And oftentimes it has to do with um, the budgets of a church or the size of a church. The budgets kind of determine uh, where the priorities go. Uh, but you mm-hmm. said something very interesting at the beginning, which is, um, do white people want to hear from white people? And I find this to be true in the last 20, 30 years I've been teaching about diversity. <laughs> and this is just, I'm getting very personal here and just kind of my frustration mm-hmm. about this. So stuff that I've been saying for 20 years, all of a sudden a white evangelical will say it and everybody's like, oh, that's so wonderful. You're so bold yeah. to say that. I said that <laughs> 20 years ago. <laughs> I said, yeah. I've been talking about this for the last 20 years. But when they hear it from one of their own or when they hear it from the existing systems and structures, then all of a sudden, oh, this is the greatest thing. We've got to you know, follow this thing. Uh, so there's a little bit of personal frustration there as yeah, well. When enough. for 20, 30 years, I've been saying these things and all right. of a sudden a white male says it. And oh, oh, we got to pay attention. We got we to think suggest- about these Great things. idea. Let's, yeah, let's do, let's do a bit more thinking around that. Oh, yeah. And, 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 I, and I would get, you know, like I was born and raised in Bolivia. And if I go to an American church and they make me the lead pastor, I can sort of get, okay, they will think I don't understand their culture because I just came from Bolivia. But in, in cases like in your case, born and raised in America, you get the culture, but still your face is freaking different. I'm sorry. Yeah. I mean, I, you understand the culture, but you just look different than, and my than name, I do. Right? My name is not yeah. an American name, which is always yeah. kind of silly for me to hear. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I'm a Korean American with a Korean American name. That's just, you right. know. Mm-hmm. So those are the kind of things that where you put people who are not like the dominant culture as otherness, regardless of how you're much we reflect American. that culture. So mm-hmm. you're right. I mean, I came to the U.S. when I was six years old. I did every year from first grade on in my education here. So I have two master's degrees and two doctorate degrees. Um, and, you know, my education, theological education, is steeped in the American, North American, Western mm-hmm. educational system. 
I, I went to the Ivy League schools to kind of beef, beef up my credentials as an American-trained mm. theologian. Uh, and yet there is that kind of initial hesitation. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I've been told I'm a Korean-American theologian. Okay, I am. That's who I am. But I'm also just a theologian. Don't put, you know, I have to I put Korean-American in front of that. Can you not just be a theologian? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. You're a folk theologian. <laughs> yeah, full stop. You know, you don't need to keep adding descriptors to me. You know, I'm yeah. a Korean-American with, you know, thinning hair. That's fine, too. But that yeah. doesn't add anything to, you know, to the description <laughs> of who I am. I'm a, yeah. a theologian, and that's a full stop. Uh, but yeah. there is that kind of creating of otherness. And you mm-hmm. see this in theology quite often, where... Mm-hmm. Theology that comes from the West never is given an adjectival describer. Right? Have you noticed that? So We've talked about these on the podcast. Yeah. Yes. Calvin, yeah. Edwards, Luther. Oh, that's just good theology. Just the, that's yeah. never like Swiss theology or New England theology. It's yeah. just good yeah. theology. Yeah. yeah, but then an African-American does theology and oh, oh that's black theology that's that's over there or latin americans do theology oh that, that's liberation theology that's over there korean does the oh that's minjang theology that's over there and so what mm-hmm. we create are these language and cultural and so, uh, societal and even political barriers where those who are not in the dominant culture are portrayed and and seen as outsiders and you're kind of identified as such. And therefore, you go over there and you speak to other Koreans. But how much do you really have to say to American society? That becomes mm-hmm. problematic. Mm-hmm. And, and you also argue that we should seek... Di- I mean, if we don't have it, like in the church, we should seek a, a diverse church. H- how then could we seek to make our, I don't know, our, our local churches more diverse when it actually doesn't matter who's getting converted? Do you think... It, it, it's uh, growing in numbers over again seeking ethnic diversity because uh, I think it's easier to just focus on the numbers than focus on the on uh, uh, diversity. Do, do you think we have to, it's like you lose one when you when you seek the other? Well, that was the, the church growth theory in the 20th century, right? I mean, you know, I, I hold a position in North Park called church growth and evangelism. And that comes out of a particular historical reality that in the 60s and 70s, there was a movement, a church growth movement, that said the best way to grow churches is actually through the use of the homogenous unit principle, meaning birds of a feather flock together. It comes out of a sociological concept called homophily, that if you get people together, the way to grow fastest and the way to grow large quickly is to have people that are like each other. Racially, socioeconomically, uh, culturally, uh, the the similarity draws other people of that similarity. Um, so that was the dominant way of looking at church growth, the numbers growth, the the mm-hmm. mega church model. Follow this oftentimes of growing the churches in a you know um, in a mono ethnic way was oftentimes the way we looked at church growth over the last forty years or so. That's been the the dominant uh, approach. Um, what I would say is that, one, um, the, the demographics have changed, so that if you are growing within one demographic, that does not actually equate growth anymore, because that demographic is shrinking. So if you're trying to build an all-white church based upon mm. the homogenational principle, uh, that's going to have a very short shelf life, because the demographics of your neighborhood is changing so dramatically. Yeah. And that's what we're seeing, significant decline in many churches, especially in urban areas, where they, you know, 40 years ago, there were these mega churches, there were these big churches, and now they're down to nothing. They're down, they've shut their doors in many cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, so 
the, the, the equivocation of church growth with the homogenization of principle was a dysfunctional ecclesiology. So now I think, and I, I don't want to equate that. I don't want to say now you become diverse, you're going to have church growth, because I don't think that's fair either. Uh, <laughs> yeah. What I will say is that diversity is reflective more of a kingdom value than it is a secular value. We yeah. see it in all throughout Scripture, Revelation 7, Acts chapter 2. We see it over and over again where Micah chapter 4, where the promise of, of the kingdom of God is a diversity that is spoken of in Scripture. And so um, the church growth movement, um, one of the major problems was its reliance upon the homogenous unit principle. And then mm-hmm. the churches that relied on that now knows that their, their demographic is dying off or shrinking, and so their churches are also dying off. And maybe an illustration of this is during um, the, the era of church growth and megachurches, um, the kind of the boomer church era. Uh, one of the flagship churches was in California, and the church was, um, uh, was Crystal Cathedral. It was on television. The pastor, Robert Schuller, was very famous, um, and it was this massive building in Southern California filled to the rafters with, with, with mostly white Americans who were mm-hmm. gathered together at this church. Um, the latest iteration of Christian Cathedral is that they went bankrupt and they shut their doors. And they actually ended up selling their building to a Spanish-speaking congregation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there you're seeing the inability to say, oh, our neighborhood is changing. So if you go to the neighborhood that Christian Cathedral is in now, it went from an all-white neighborhood to a very multi-ethnic neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And they never tracked that. And so it's not so much church mm. growth that comes out of diversity. Uh, it's church survival in many cases. Mm. If you're not recognizing mm. the diversity, the reality of diversity in your neighborhood, it's not so much you're, gonna, you're not going to grow. You're probably going to die off within the next mm-hmm. five, ten years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, this would also have to go, I mean, with, with liturgy. Because I, 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 don't, I don't think a, a lot of white people know it is that the liturgy is pretty white. Because it's, it's, it's all you know. But like, if, it, like when a black person, a Latino w- person walks into a church, it, okay, you definitely know this is a white-oriented church. Yeah. And yeah. It, it, even though I like the sermon, I like the people, like so, somehow the liturgy is, is so white that it's not welcoming anymore. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. I, I know you know what I mean. So, but I, I'm guessing a lot of people, if they want to build a diverse church, would have to really uh, think about the liturgy twice, I yeah. guess. Yeah. Do you agree with that? Yeah. So liturgy, worship, and even just kind of the culture and style of a church uh, mm-hmm. can create an um, an unintentional sense of not being welcome, right? I mean, right. Yeah. You know, they're, not, they're not saying we don't want you here. We want you here. But you've created a culture, liturgy, worship style that says actually, you know, underneath the surface – yeah. You're not really wanted here. So the example that Unless I'm you change a lot. is the uh, um, in American history, U.S. history, there's been uh, two approaches to diversity. Uh, the first image of diversity in America was called the Great American Melting Pot. Uh, mm. Terrible, terrible image. Uh, yeah. You take all these wonderful <laughs> ethnic people, you throw them into a boiling pot of hot water, and you melt away our flavor, and we become cream of mushroom. Uh, so it was this really brutal <laughs> image of you know all the different cultures. We're going to melt it away and just become this one bland culture. Um, and most of us have rejected that throughout American history. That, that was now rejected. And then in U.S. history, a second um, image came up. And this is maybe uh, more directly uh, to what you're saying. Um, that was the salad bowl. 
And in the salad bowl, we want different vegetables in that salad bowl, right? So mm -hmm. you got to have iceberg lettuce and, and tomatoes, but you also can have a jalapeno in there. You could also mm -hmm. have kimchi. You could also have collard greens and you could also have all uh, Napa cabbage and all these different vegetables in this beautiful bowl that demonstrates this diversity. But what you're describing is you took that beautiful bowl, the salad bowl, and you covered it, every inch of it, with creamy ranch dressing. And everything now tastes like creamy ranch. You got kimchi tasting like creamy ranch. You got jalapenos tasting like creamy ranch. You got everything tasting like creamy ranch. And so that at some point I'm like, I don't want to taste like creamy ranch. No, I want to taste like kimchi. Taste like kimchi. I just want to taste like kimchi. Is a flavor that is beautiful. It's not for everyone, but it's a flavor that is beautiful. Yeah. And I don't want to lose that flavor. And what right. you're describing in many churches is, oh, we want you here because you look different. And you make our congregation look different. But we're mm -hmm. going to drench you with our flavor. And at the end mm -hmm. of the week, you're going to taste like and act like and, and, and behave like one of us. Uh, and that is, a, is, is actually a subtle and a passive-aggressive, hostile environment for many people of color. To walk mm -hmm. into a setting which passively, passive-aggressively says, you're not one of us and you need to adapt and you need mm -hmm. to fit in. So you've got to follow our liturgy. You need to fit in. So you've got to follow our culture. And what it is, is this huge bat of, vat of creamy ranch just drenching everybody in sight. And many of us say, that's not the kind of church we want to be in. <clears throat> Sorry for interrupting your podcast, but Claire Perini has something important to say. This podcast is a ministry of Regent College and relies on the support of generous donors. If you've enjoyed our conversation today or any other day, please consider making a small donation to the college at rgnt.net forward slash give. That's R-R-G-N. <laughs> How do you say R? Uh, uh. <laughs> R. Okay, let me do that again. R-G-R. <laughs> Please consider making a small donation to the college at rgnt.net forward slash give. That's R-G-N-T dot net slash give. Now, if you really want to make our day, when you donate, there's a comment box. Please leave a note saying that the podcast sent you. Thank you. Thank you. And enjoy the rest of the podcast. And how do you keep the salad tasting like a salad? I was going to say, oh, we need another. Yes. What's, have you got a, Have you got an alternative uh, like food analogy for us? What is it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay, let's keep the food this, analogy. You know, it's working. Are, so what's the what's the third alternative? The only thing I can think coming close to it is a uh, uh, is a buffet, an all you can eat buffet. buffet. <laughs> but I have to be careful here because you know if you go to a cheap buffet. The, you know, the Chinese food is made by not a Chinese person. The Italian yeah. <laughs> food is made by not an Italian person. So right. I guess the closest... Yeah, the tacos is, are made by know, some, I don't know, I've Australians. been to Vegas, and I've been to a Vegas buffet, and they actually have a Japanese chef making the sushi. They actually have a Chinese person making the, the Chinese food, right. an Italian person. I mean, they actually... Or uh, where is that place? In Disneyland, in, in the Epcot Center. They actually have people from the home culture come and make the food for that community. So yeah. that mm -hmm. feels a little more authentic, that we can actually get all the flavors 
and all the different richness of flavors authentically done. So it's not Olive Garden Italian food. It's not Panda Express Chinese food. It's really the <laughs> full expression, the, the, the fullness yeah. of that flavor and the fullness of that food coming out. So that's the closest that I can think of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And by chefs, do you mean pastors? Different, like, ethnically diverse pastors? What are you talking about? I'm wondering, here's another question for you. Is the, so say your neighbourhood is, is not diverse. It, like, I mean, say your neighbourhood is monocultural in some form. Um, and we want our churches to be, you know, in some ways reflective of the people around us. Where does, where does sort of the, the priority for kind of an ethnically diverse leadership and so on in, in that sort of context when the neighbourhood itself doesn't reflect that if we're thinking that churches need to be... Yeah, what do you think about that? Yeah, so uh, the first thing I'll say is that there's some studies that show that um, the lack of diversity in churches is actually not because they're not in... They're in, uh, they're, they are actually in diverse neighborhoods. Right. They just don't reflect that. So yeah. uh, Michael Emerson, my former provost, brilliant sociologist, actually did a study in U.S. schools and U.S. churches, compare the two, and found that U.S. schools were six times more diverse than U.S. churches in the same neighborhood. So what you're seeing is if you go to the local elementary school, you will see incredible diversity. If you go to the local church right down the block, uh, you will not see diversity. So that would be kind of my first challenge to say, uh, how are you sure there's no diversity in your community? Right. Or are you just kind of, mm. you know, kind of seeing because all your friends are white, you don't realize that the, your neighborhood is becoming more and more diverse. Uh, but at the same time, I do recognize that there are many, many communities in the U.S. and in Canada that are still mono-ethnic. And so mm. uh, at that point, the movement I would uh, say is, um, like we do, have been doing in the church for many, many years, preparing our children and youth for the next stage of what Christianity is going to look like. Right. Training up our young people to be ready. Because if they're not experiencing it growing up, as in their neighborhoods aren't diverse, and I would say that's not quite true either. You, if you go to your local school, you'll see diversity that you don't mm-hmm. see in your local church. Mm-hmm. But even then, I would say um, they, they might go away to college and they will encounter yeah. a diversity that they will need to understand better than they're getting right now. Um, so for me, one of the things for, uh, for uh, uh, my, my, my son and my daughter um, is that they knew early on in the church that diversity was a reality. One, they were born in Boston and Cambridge and they grew up in the city. So they saw that in the school around them. So mm-hmm. my kids went to a school uh, that was uh, 55 different languages and 75 different nationalities. Uh, that's Dang. off the charts, but you know it's becoming more and more normal to see that kind of diversity in the local schools and in the in the uh, especially in the elementary school level. Um, but they also saw in the church diversity in the church, and so when they grow up and one's in college, one's in high school, and they go away to college, they're going to say, "Wait a minute, I'm seeing this kind of church here that is mono ethnic, and that's not right." That's, that's not what I grew up with. Uh, and that they would begin to have relationships with professors and with teachers and with pastors and with residential advisors that are cross-cultural because that was so normal for them growing up. Uh, and so that's where I would challenge to say, yes, you might not see that right now in your neighborhood. Uh, and, yeah. and, and, you know, but your children will. And within right. their lifetime, and maybe within the mm. next five, ten years, or they're already seeing it, they will begin to see diversity in their high school, 
And certainly when they go off to university, and certainly if they move to another city, they're going to see diversity. So like we've done for years and years, uh, what is the church doing to prepare the next generation for leadership in the next generation? Um, I say this to Christian colleges all the time uh, in the U.S. and Christian colleges that uh, many of them were started uh, in suburban areas or rural areas. And uh, I would go visit these Christian colleges and they're like 95% white. And um, they are, their staff is 95% white. And I tell them, you're not going to survive into the next generation if your faculty, staff, and student body is that overwhelmingly white. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I also say, like, but you're also teaching a curriculum as well as a, you know, demonstrating in leadership. Your, your administration, your staff, your faculty is overwhelmingly white. Um, you're also demonstrating an educational reality from 1950. So what you're teaching Mm. in your curriculum and what you're demonstrating and embodying in your faculty and student body makeup is a education that fits 1950. So I say to the students, go to your bursar's office and say, this month, I'm only paying 1950 prices on my tuition because you're giving me a 1950 (laughs) education. This usually gets me banned from that school for the rest of my life. I don't get invited back after that statement. So I say, let's create education. Let's create a a culture and society of learning, especially in the Christian communities, whether it's our churches or Christian colleges or our seminaries, that reflect an education that's going to make them ready for 2050. Not for 1950, for 2050. Mm. And then we can charge 2050 tuition prices. Yeah, yeah, that's right. right. And then you get invited back. And then you get invited back. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, and everything's fine. Um, my mind's going to um, – so we're talking about Western culture and pro- pro- uh, predominantly and kind of the need for diversity within Western culture and the need for us for, for us to have ethnically diverse churches and whatever. Are we seeing that in parts of Africa? So uh, is the Korean church having this same thing? Are they thinking we need some more Australians on our staff? We need we don't have enough Bolivians on our, you know, church um, thing, you know, or that, you know, is, is the church in Tanzania saying – you know, there's yeah, there really needs to be a few more Latinos in our like. Mm. So, how what in your understanding of all of that? How where's what's that conversation like? Yeah, well, I mean, we do have to recognize that these nations, by and large, uh, for a number of different reasons, there's no one kind of answer to it, are monoethnic. You know, Korea has has been historically right. known as the Hermit Kingdom, and it has been mostly monoethnic for mm. for generations and generations. Mm. Now that is slowly changing, by the way. Just a little interesting tidbit on that: um, more and more immigrants are coming into Korea, and more and more kind of interracial marriages are actually happening in Korea. This yeah. it's a small right. segment, but you know, we definitely live in a globalized society. But many of these nations are, generally speaking, monoethnic, monoracial. Uh, the U.S., Canada, and certain other parts of the, the world as well have intentionally, especially in the case of the U.S., have intentionally said we want diversity in our society, have intentionally right. said, you know, give us your poor, your huddled masses, yearning to be free, come we'll, come to our country and we will, you know, we will allow you to be free. Those were, you know, that was false advertising if, you, if you're turning me away at the door because that's what right. you advertised. Um, so in that sense... Uh, the uniqueness about the U.S. and Canada, and, and actually Australia as well, uh, but there are certain nations uh, that have embraced this diversity yeah. uh, as a society to say, mm-hmm. uh, again, that's changing now in many of our nations, but yeah. the, the initial advertising was we want that, and that's what has come about. We have diversity yeah. in the right. United States. We have diversity in Canada, and so we're dealing with that reality. So yes. for a Korean church to be 99% 
Korean, that's pretty reflective of the culture. <laughs> that's pretty reflective of the demographics of that society. Mm. The other right. part of it, though, is that many of these churches are actually more global than the churches in the West because they have interacted and inherited and, um, and had this uh, benefit in, in a good way and in a bad way of Western theology. So, you know, right. when, if you go to many of our Western seminaries, many of our students are African students, Latin American students, and Asian students. Uh, in fact, I'll be as bold to say that without the global diaspora students of African, Asian, Latin American students, many of our Western seminaries would have gone under many, many years ago. Uh, we see this in the Catholic Church, where the seminaries in the West, in North America, uh, many are Vietnamese, are African. And so uh, the, the influence of Western culture is, is everywhere. And you're going to see when you go to Korea, you're going to see a lot of pastors who have studied in the United States. When yeah. you go to Africa, you're going to find pastors who've studied. And, you know, kind of every place yeah. you go, in some form or other, you're going to find that influence. So, yes, you don't have the diversity in the population, and that's not, and that's not going to be reflected in the church, which, again, it, it makes sense that it wouldn't. But you already do have a global Christianity that is at work in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, maybe more so than in North America, where they're more aware in outside of North America of the global context of Christianity. And so mm -hmm. a Korean pastor is going to be influenced by Billy Graham, no question about it. A right. Korean pastor has read Jonathan Edwards, has read Tim Keller. These Korean mm -hmm. pastors are very much aware of the, the global impact of Christianity, as are African Latin Americans uh, pastors. Um, so what we're talking about is uh, it's an appropriate diversity given the lack of diversity in these nations, but also even then these leaders and pastors are exposed and know the global Christianity maybe a little better because they've they've studied the global Christianity. Right, yeah. And that thing comes back to English, the la the kind of the language question as well, that, that English is the primary language of theological discourse. And so um, that's sort of that's sort of all. That's where then language starts to tie in, again. You know, yeah. with that. I mean, it's I, I, it's 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 a it's a challenge to do this because um, I understand because English, you know, generally speaking, is the dominant language in yeah. politics and in international relations. You know. Yeah. Um, you know, what's the, the only people that don't speak in anything besides English is is Americans. We don't know. We don't speak more than one language. Right. Uh, but the idea of English as a as a language through which we govern and especially international relations, I, I understand that in a very practical yeah, yeah. way. But Makes the question sense, yeah. is, does that at that point become a theologically embedded assumption? That right. English is the language of discourse. Mm -hmm. uh, English is the way that we, you know, English is the heavenly language or English is mm -hmm. the intellectual language for Christians. Yeah. Um, that's where it gets a little bit problematic for me. Right. Uh, and that's where, so, for example, in the PhD programs, uh, many theological the PhD programs, you still have to learn German and French. Um, yeah. And that's like, whoa, that, that's like a, 500 years ago, 400 yeah, years yeah, ago. Why aren't we learning? Yeah, yeah, and more and more PhD Spanish. programs are saying, actually, mm -hmm. Korean, Korean is, a, is a theological language. Um, mm -hmm. I actually learned Spanish as my theological language. Right. Yeah. Um, and so th these are places where the assumption of either English or European languages as central and primary mm. to what theological discourse looks like. And you know, I, I'm, I'm yeah. hoping more and more, on the, especially on the educational level, we begin to challenge that. Mm-hmm. 
Do you ever feel hopeless or do you feel hopeful? Well, uh, being in the U.S. over the last four years, <laughs> as, as someone who's talked about race uh, for the yeah. last 20, 30 years, um, I will say, and you know, this is U.S. politics I'm talking about, yeah. um, 2016, many of us evangelicals of color uh, either did walk away or ready to walk away from evangelical Christianity. Not because we disagreed no. with the theological no. tenets, not no, because we yeah. disagreed with the ecclesiology. Uh, yeah. In fact, we were drawn to evangelicalism yeah. because of the depth of theology and especially the ecclesiology of community. Yeah. And, you know, there's, just, there's wonderful things about evangelical Christianity. Uh, but that term has become so co-opted by a political mm-hmm. party uh, and so co-opted by certain characteristics and attributes that are completely not Christian uh, that I think many evangelicals of color are saying this doesn't make sense for us as yeah. much. Uh, so there is that kind of defeat, you know, and I, and I, I don't want to put it that way, but there is that sense mm-hmm. of uh, many of us, we've been in this conversation for 20, 30 years talking about racial justice, talking about mm-hmm. ways that the church could be one, the ways the churches could be united uh, in Christ, um, and found that 81% of, of American white Americans don't think that way. Uh, 81% of white evangelicals don't agree with some of the boundaries of our conversation uh, and that it's okay to say the things that are being said in the public arena now against women, Mm. against people of color, um, against women of color. Um, Mm. And that's when I say, I'm a Christian, I'm an evangelical theologically, but I don't know if I want that label anymore when it comes to the social political implication of it. Mm. I'm not sure I want to be associated with a group that is known more for hate and exclusion rather than for grace and for diversity. Um, Mm. And sadly, that's where my kind of anxiety and and fear and and sadness comes in, which is um, a a label that I think at one point was very significant. Um, It talked about good news, evangel. Mm. Uh, It talked about a community. It talked about... Um, the centrality of scripture, the centrality of Christ, that that movement has been co-opted in such a way that those of us who went all in on Western evangelicalism in so many ways uh, are now being told we're not mm. welcome or you don't fit in. Yeah. And so at that point, I say, you're, I'm not leaving. You're, you're asking me to leave. And I'm not leaving. You kind of change the boundaries on me a little bit so that all the theological markers that I thought made me an evangelical, they don't apply anymore. And the fact that I'm not white, the fact that I'm not a Republican, the fact that I'm not, you know, X, Y, and Z, social politically, that makes me stop being an evangelical. At that point, I didn't leave. You all asked me to leave. Mm. What sustains you in the, in that? Because that's, as you say, it's like, it's, it's, I mean, demoralizing, like not even, that's not even strong enough. It's like, it's like, yeah, you change, you change the boundaries. I want to be, I want to be in, but I, I can't, I cannot stay with this. What, what sustains you and what kind of, what sort of, um, what picture compels you to sort of stay with the, the evangelical theologically position? You know, like what, what compels you? What, what fuels you to stay? I'm, I'm, I'm still, in in the theological sense, even if I'm not in in the... Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, for me, theology still matters. Um, What I believe and how I came to believe that and the the values that I hold because of that belief system, um, that doesn't change. 
Um, so again, going back to well, what drew me in, the, the centrality of Christ, yeah. the centrality of Scripture, the wonderful sense of community that the church can offer, um, the activism, the, the fact that not only are we transformed by Christ, but that we are moved to action. We're moved to evangelism and social justice because Christ has transformed us. That has never changed in me. Yeah. That part of who I am, that Korean passion is still there. <laughs> and that's, that hasn't budged. Um, yeah. And so theology still matters. And if that's the place that I want to find my theological expression, then I will still stay within those theological mm-hmm. boundaries. Right. Um, the other thing I have found is relationships, friendships. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, those that have kind of walked along this journey over the years, um, uh, these are relationships I, I so strongly value uh, that I would, I would not abandon those relationships even if mm-hmm. it meant... You know, it, it causes discomfort for me. Yeah. Um, so yeah. that's another part. I mean, that's actually a very evangelical value system to care yeah. for relationships, to yeah. recognize that community is central to our uh, relationship to God. You know, the, hor- mm-hmm. the vertical and the horizontal. Right. Um, I feel like my vertical relationship with Christ has been solid and it's yeah. it hasn't been shaken and my theological framework hasn't been shaken. Um, so I'm thankful that. For not with everyone, but with a significant yeah. percentage of, of friends, uh, we still see ourselves as uh, following the same Jesus um, mm-hmm. and pursuing the same calling. Uh, so mm-hmm. those relationships I value so greatly that I don't think that, I think that keeps me going. It keeps me sustained. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. I had to get personal at the end there because I was feeling I was feeling your passion and then I was feeling the pain. You know, I mean, I don't feel it at all in the same way, but, you know, like I was like, oh, this is yeah. What yeah? We what's the yeah the sustaining piece? Yeah, um, and, and 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 I do realize because I have a lot of uh, friends that are theologians from from different different uh, countries. They they somehow want to go to you know the 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 important schools, the Oxfords, the the Cambridge or whatever, like to to this German countries, and it doesn't it doesn't feel like. It's it's mainly because of whatever they want to study is because they want to be a part of the group, yeah. right? Of yeah. that important group of theologians. Yeah, and it feels like a lot of them are sh- striving to to be part of the group. Yeah, and like sometimes what you say, it sounds like you know. I know this is bad news, but somehow because of the way you look or your ethnicity, yeah. you'll never be part of that group. Yeah. Right? Sometimes your accent, uh, so it, it, it does feel, feel. I kind of feel that way. Yeah, because, I mean, I think those in power uh, retain power by creating otherness. Um, and that's what I've experienced as well. Um, a, kind of a minor, small, kind of annoying illustration that I, I point to is that over the last three months, uh, as in the U.S., uh, there have been there were some significant incidents over the summer, Ahmaud Arbery, mm-hmm. Breonna Taylor, and uh, mm-hmm. George Floyd, mm-hmm. uh, where we saw you know the assault on black bodies, and that has actually been in a good way sparked some greater interest in yeah. hey we got to talk about the race problem in America, mm-hmm. um, but with that increased interest, which I thought to be very significant and um, encouraging. Uh, there was also the backlash. And the backlash was, oh, if you talk about race, you're a Marxist. Oh, if you talk about race, you're a critical race theorist. Uh, and they just started kind of, you know, as oftentimes happen in these kinds of conversations, just name calling, you know, name calling. You're a leftist, mm-hmm. you're a liberal, you're a, you know, Marxist, you're a, a CRT person. And it was very disquieting and very upsetting because 
to be called a CRT Marxist because I actually bought my first critical race theory book about two weeks ago. And um, I, had, I had not read any of these books. Now, I knew that I, you know, I'm an academic. I know the discipline. It's, a, it's an academic discipline. I have to be aware of it. But I, I, my first two books were yeah. bought a couple of weeks ago when I got accused of being it. And I said, oh, I got to figure out what I'm being accused of. What am I? <laughs> I got to find out who I am. Somebody tell me. <laughs> so what I said was, look, this is my very first book on CRT. And I'm being accused of being a Marxist critical race theorist, but I have four degrees from your institutions in theology, two master's degrees and two doctor degrees from your Western American theological institutions. And yet you don't call me a theologian, you call me a Marxist. Um, so that's where this kind of otherness, you know, it's easy to create otherness if you look different. If it's easy, mm. it's easy to create otherness if your name sounds different. It's easy mm. to create otherness if, they, if you think that person has a different angle on things. Mm. Um, mm. And so uh, that's, that's a tendency for those who are maybe on the cusp of losing power. The best way to keep power is actually create an enemy, uh, create mm. an otherness, mm. and mm. to say these people are different, therefore make sure I have the power. These people mm -hmm. are trying to invade your suburbs, so give me the power. These people are trying to change your theology, so give me the power. So that's what I found to be problematic in the most recent conversations, where the labeling of especially people of color as X, Y, and Z, Marxists, critical race theorists, liberals, um, that felt like the same old game of I'm going to keep my power in order to do that, I have to give a negative label to the person that I think might threaten my power. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and I know we're running out of time, but it, it does, I, I kind of have a feeling, and I've heard from other people, it, it does make you want to go back to your group, like even, even in terms of churches, like, yeah, like this diversity is, is it's, It's just bad. I'd rather go and find me a, a Spanish-speaking church. Forget about the whole thing. I feel at home there, and I'd rather go to a Latino church and and forget about this 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 diversity thing. It's it's oh, and and it feels like a, a place of refuge. With I don't have to pretend. Everybody understands. I'm loud. I can move around. Nobody's gonna look weird because I dance. It's people get get me, and and I, I've heard you argue that those ethnic churches have pros and cons. There can be a good thing for immigrants, but it can cause problems as well. Could you comment on that a little bit before we, yeah. we so finish Yeah, so I'll, I'll do both the kind of the sociological, theological, and the personal here. Um, the sociological, theological is that oftentimes when we are in a enclosed community, like an ethnic enclave, um, our, our growth might be limited. And this is across the board. White churches that are just white churches, Spanish-speaking congregations that are just Spanish-speaking congregations. When your kind of uh, circle of influence and uh, learning is, is, is enclosed, um, it limits your learning. And so that's one of the things about these ethnic enclaves, again, across the board, that mm -hmm. it could potentially create an, an isolation that does not is not as conducive for learning. Uh, the other part of that is that the currency that we develop in certain ethnic enclaves doesn't have the same value in other groups. So if you are a, a, a noticeable leader, a notable leader in the Spanish-speaking congregation, 
mm-hmm. sometimes you're not recognized in the larger evangelical community. Right. Right? Yeah. So you're a phenomenal leader in the Korean church, but you don't get to lead in the larger evangelical community. So mm-hmm. that's where the isolation can be negative. One, it could, mm-hmm. it could potentially create a stagnation of learning. Uh, but second, it could also mean that your influence is limited to that particular subgroup or uh, that group. Uh, mm-hmm. But on a more personal note, I would sure. say that uh, the immigrant church and kind of these ethnic-specific groups, particularly for minority groups that are outside of the dominant culture, uh, it is a great place of healing. It is a place of healing. It is a place where who you are in 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 Christ and the way God made you is affirmed. Um, and mm. the personal part for me is that my my mom passed away two months ago, and my mom has been uh, has been a spiritual warrior her entire life. Uh, but when she immigrated to the United States, uh, my parents split, so she was a single mom raising four kids, and we ended up moving into a rough neighborhood in Baltimore. And uh, we grew up on food stamps, we grew up in subsidized housing, and my mom worked 20 hours a day, six days a week, uh, to try to keep our family together. Um, And for her, that seventh day, that Sunday, was the day that she could go and have her dignity uh, and have her spirituality met at the Korean church. Uh, So for six days a week, she was speaking in a language that was not her own. She was engaging in a culture that was different from her. Uh, But Mm -hmm. then on that Sunday, she was uh, what we say in the Korean church, which means an elderly mm. woman of great respect. It's a, it's mm. a female elder who everybody respects. She was kwansanim. She wasn't just, hey, you, can you fix me this? Hey, you, can you do this for me? She was a leader, an elder. And the Korean church provided that for her. And so I am eternally grateful for the immigrant church. One, uh, it, mm. it incubated me. It gave me the confidence to say, God has made me this way, and I'm going to continue to preach and teach in the way that God has made me. But even thinking about my mom, who, who again passed away a couple of months ago, to say the immigrant church provided her a home that was a, a, a genuine spiritual home for her, and it gave her dignity that I am so thankful for. Mm-hmm. That feels like a great place for us to – I mean, we could keep going. We can always keep going, but we, we won't. But so, Sung-chan, thank you so much for your time. And thanks for um, thanks for using your passion for 30 <laughs> – however many years and um, for sharing that with us as well today. We're so grateful for you. So thank you. My pleasure. <laughs> thanks for listening to the Regent College Podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. To discover more about Regent College – its upcoming events, conferences, courses, and more content like this, visit rgnt.net. That is rgnt.net.